Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans 11 is where we will begin today. As we finish our series looking at the five solas of the Reformation. I've kind of given a little review every week, kind of the same little summary so that you can be with us. Knowing that the five solas of the Reformation, we're talking about five doctrines that emerged or were highlighted during the Protestant Reformation. Protestant Reformation happened in the 1500s and 1600s where men who were a part of the Catholic Church recognized that the teaching of the Catholic Church was wrong in certain areas. Some places it had been perverted. Some places there were doctrines in Scripture that were not being taught. And so those men looked to see those doctrines taught again and wanted to see a return to Scripture. The five solas are five alones in Scripture. That's what sola means. It's Latin for alone or only. And it's the idea, the five of them that we've talked about so far, the first week we started with sola gratia, by grace alone, that you and I are saved by God's grace. It's not some merit that we have. It's not something that we have done to earn his love or his favor, that God is gracious, and there's nothing else that has to be done in that regard. The second week, we talked about sola fide, the idea that you and I are not saved by what we do. We are saved by faith in what he has done on the cross for us. And that that belief, that faith is all that's required. It's faith alone, not faith plus works that saves us. The third week, we talked about solus Christus. Solus Christus is Christ alone. It is only through Christ that we are saved. There's no other name given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. It's only in Christ. And this idea that it, we don't need another mediator. We don't need a priest or a pope or another person as a conduit to reach God Christ alone stands as the mediator and the one who saves. We looked last week at sola scriptura, which is talking about the fact that we, are, we, we know all of this, we trust, and our basis for all of this is scripture alone. We're not looking to the traditions of the church or what some council has said, that our basis for, for, um, for salvation, it comes from scripture. We know about how we can be saved through these words that make us wise unto salvation. God's word is without error. It is given, it's God-breathed. We talked about all of those things last week. All of those things culminate in where we will land today. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Notice what we have built. We could say, by looking at these five solas, that you and I are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. You see, the glory of God stands alone. We are saved for the glory of God, not the glory and the praise of men. You see, if, if you and I are saved because we have done something to earn it, then it's for our glory that we've been saved. 
If we are saved because we follow some sort of tradition, then whoever created that tradition or our own works in following this rigid system uh, so so, uh, faithfully, then, then we could be praised for what we had done. If we were to go through another person, another mediator, then that person could be praised. But the truth of it is that you and I are saved By Christ alone, he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And because you and I have done nothing to merit this, warrant it, or earn it, you and I have nothing to be praised. Our salvation is to the glory of God alone. Men are not to be praised in salvation. We're not to walk around with our chest puffed out and say, look, I'm on my way to heaven and I'm right with God and all of you others, well, forget you. See what I've done? That's not the idea. The idea is is that when we are saved, the only thing that we have to boast in is in what he has done. If you think even walking back through those five solas, those five solas, those five doctrines, which, as I've said many times, these men, these reformers did not create those, right? The idea is that they, they simply highlighted them from Scripture. If you think about those five solas that we've talked about, grace glorifies God. Grace alone glorifies God because it is his mercy that we glorify and that we honor, right? Faith alone honors God because it's God's gift of faith that channels that love and mercy which causes us to be saved. Christ alone honors God, the fact that God sent his only begotten son to save the world. The idea that scripture alone, this glorifies God, that it is his unique revelation to us of himself and the plan of salvation that gives God glory by which we are saved. To the glory of God alone. So what is glory? What What is glory in general? What is the glory of God? We have an idea. If I were to say that word and I would say, what does glory mean to you? People might give me different you know, things, different, different things that we might say. You remember uh, Evil Knievel jumping on a motorcycle, you know, all the stunts and all the whatever. You remember Evil Knievel? The really famous Evil Knievel quote is, bones heal, chicks dig scars, pain is temporary, glory is forever. Mm. <laughs> When he says that, what does he mean? Hmm. Does he mean glor- the, the accomplishment, right? The accomplishment of doing it. That I've done this stunt and now it's done and my bones may break, right? And I may have scars from it and the pain may come, but nobody can ever take back the accomplishment of me doing that feat. Does he mean the renown or the satisfaction that comes from having done that thing? Is that what he means? Does he mean the praise that I get? Because I have done that, people will cheer. I'll be remembered even after I'm dead. Which we're talking about him now and quoting him and having deacons amen the quote, right? So um, what's he talking about here? 
Now, you and I should know that the truth is that the, there, is a, there is a glory of man. And the glory of man is temporary. Like when Evil Knievel says, glory is forever, eh, maybe. But the glory of God is forever. The glory of man is temporary, right? There's two words in Scripture that really convey this, an Old Testament Hebrew word and a New Testament Greek word that, that let's kind of take this and kind of figure out what glory is. What are we talking about? So the Old Testament Hebrew word is kavod. It means weightiness, importance. It's this idea of, of something that, that carries weight, something that has an importance to it. So the, the fact that, that what, what evil can evil did had not been done by someone else. And so this is, a, this is an accomplishment that is unique that I can hang my hat on kind of idea. It's a weighty, important thing, right? This New Testament word is doxa, like we might sing the doxology, right? Doxa is the New Testament word, and it can mean lots of things. It can mean opinion or conjecture. Um, it also means praise. So this idea that, that um, there's greatness, weightiness, something of value that is to be praised is the idea behind glory. The definition that I wrote, the working definition for us this week um, that I gave in my notes is, glory is the greatness of God and the praise and honor given to him because of that greatness. It's kind of like a simple working definition. Um, I'm not a smart guy. I found guys who are smart. They have given other definitions of glory. Let me give those to you, see if this helps to form our thought about it. Dwight Pentecost in his book, The Glory of God. Glory is displayed excellence. Two words. Displayed excellence. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says, God's glory is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. Something we see or recognize, the excellence of who he is. John Piper the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. This is, this is what we're talking about. The fact that God is great, he is of weighty importance, he is of the most importance. And we praise and honor him, we give him glory and honor because of who he is. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33, which is going to be our launching pad for today, describes this idea of the greatness and glory of God. Romans 11 and 33 reads, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever given him advice? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Today I want to take the time that we have left and I want to give you three things that I think we should be doing in relation to the glory of God. 
Three things that if we think about his greatness and the praise that is due his greatness, what can we do in our lives in relation to that magnificent glory? The first thing that I think we should do is you and I should look for his glory. You and I should be looking for his glory because God's glory is all around us. If it is a visible manifestation of his manifold perfections, right, then we should be able to see it around us. The Bible makes it very clear that if we look around us, God's glory can be found or seen, evidence of it can be seen in creation. There are several verses that I would like to give you to show this. And then we'll, we'll kind of get to it a little bit. But Psalm 19 and verse 1, the psalmist writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1 in verse 20 tells us that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. From the greatness of the cosmos to the, to the complexity in your DNA to the, to the way that all of the systems of this world work together. Psalm 8 in verse 1 O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Down to verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When I look at how great you are, I recognize how small I am that you would even be mindful of me at all. The, 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 the world around us shows us the glory of God. I want to say I won't have this exactly right because it's not in my notes, but C.S. Lewis has uh, something where he says the idea that it wasn't in nature that I saw the glory of God, but it was by nature that I understood what the word glory meant. It gave meaning to the word glory. It wasn't that I necessarily saw God in everything, but when I realized that God had made all of it, then it gave me an idea to understand how glorious he is. This idea that if we look around us in this natural world, it shows us the greatness of God. The fact that God not only created it, but also has designed all of creation in order to give him glory. Colossians 1 tells us this, Colossians 1 and 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So if I look around me and I look at the creation that God has made, I can see something or learn something about his greatness and his, good, and his goodness. This air is able to be breathed. It's not noxious, right? Cool green grass feels good on your feet. It doesn't slice your feet open. God has created a world that is good. It displays his greatness, right? Making a world for us. Which leads to a question. God, what we know about God is that God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need any of this that he's made. 
so why make it? God is all about one thing. His name receiving glory. Now when I say that, that may kind of rub you the wrong way. You may say, well, God kind of sounds like an arrogant jerk. Everything's to give him glory. He created all this for him to be praised. All of it was made by him and for him. That's kind of an arrogant thing to do. We think that for a few reasons. First of all, we don't like people who are like that, right? If you know somebody that walks through life thinking that this life is one big party in their honor, you don't like that person, right? They think they're the best at everything, they're the greatest at everything, they're the whatever, right? We don't like that kind of person. But the difference is, you and I are flawed. He is not. He is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. And unlike those people who think that life is a party in their honor, all of this is a party in his honor. And what's on top of that, he's worthy of it. In fact, if he did not desire his own praise, he would be in error. Because if he desired the praise of something else, he would desire the praise of something that was lesser than him, which is idolatry. And because he is, you know, people, we, uh, kind of a way to say this, you know how people will say, you know, well, uh, it's not bragging if you can back it up. You know how people will say that, you know? It's kind of the idea. It's not arrogance because this is just who God is. So if that's the case, if everything is about him getting glory and all of creation is made and it's all pointing to his glory and you and I were made to point to his glory and we can look around and see that everything was made in order to point to his glory. It's not in my notes, but I'll go off on this trail too. If you look around in this world and you see all these things that are bad and are not good and you say, these things are against God's word, how in the world is God pleased with this thing? How, how are, you're telling me that, that child abuse happens because God wants glory? God permits this? Hmm. God looks at events like that in two ways. The first way he looks at it is, is in this small, uh, um, narrow look. The idea is, is that this thing is, is against my will. It's against my commands. This thing is bad. God is grieved by that thing. But none of those things that God looks at with grief are bigger than he is or his sovereignty. And so on the whole... It's working out the plan that is the goodness and greatness of God, that is revealing him. We don't understand that because we're not God. But if we read scripture and we read about the sovereignty of God and we read how God is grieved by injustices done to those who are um, um, innocent, then we recognize that. And if we look around at this world and in all of creation, we see that God has created a world that is all directed to give him goodness and, and glory, to give him greatness and, and to, to praise him. 
It's not only true in salvation and true in nature, but it is also true in our salvation. Did you know that you and I were not saved for you? Your salvation is not for you. Now, if you think about it for just a minute, when you were saved, many of you, like I was, was saved, and part of the reason I was saved was I didn't want to go to hell. I mean, that's just the truth of it. I, I knew what Scripture's about. I knew what scripture, that if I didn't have Christ, that, that that would be my eternal destiny. I knew that that's what Scripture taught, and I didn't want to go to hell. But you know, the longer I've served Christ, the more that I recognize that this salvation is not just about not going to hell. That I was saved in order to honor and glorify him. You understand that when we read this book, and this book tells us all about how Christ has died for the redemption of men, and we see this story of redemption laid out in Scripture, you do understand that you and I, while we are beneficiaries of that, it's not a story about us. It's a story about his grace, his glory. It's for his honor and for his glory. You were not saved so that you would go to heaven when you die. You weren't saved so that you would be re reunited with grandma and grandpa. Here, hear me. All those things are good and great, and they're wonderful benefits. But that's not why you were saved. You were saved in order for him to be glorified. And when we take a look at creation and we recognize that everything is designed to give him glory, the same should be true when we look at our salvation. If we look at Scripture, even though we oftentimes will think that this salvation is about us, this salvation is about him, and the Bible says so. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you go down a few verses to verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see, if you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, that first one that we just read, there's lots of benefits that we have in that passage, but those benefits are not the reason why we are saved. Right? They're what we receive from salvation. There's some things that we, we benefit from, but the reason we were saved is to the praise of his glory. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 15. It's not only in your salvation, but he has commanded us to go and take this message to the world. And so 2 Corinthians 4 and 15 says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The very plan 
that the Great Commission entails of us to take the message and make disciples in this world, it's not only our salvation that is for his glory, it is the way that we share our salvation and others are saved. That's for his glory too. When we look around at creation, we may think, hmm, this beach is nice and enjoyable. This little shaded little woody spot with this stream running through it, this is a nice, peaceful place to enjoy. And yet we benefit from all that. But if we really, really look at it, it's all for his glory. Salvation, while there are benefits, and while we enjoy what we have in Christ, it's all for his glory. The more and more that we look, we should be looking around us and see everything as pointing to the glory of God. First of all, we should look for his glory. Second thing I will say is, what should we do in relation to his glory? We should long for his glory. We should long for it. We should want God to be glorified. Before I talk about this longing for his glory, let's talk a little bit about the opposite of that. If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and I look around me and I recognize that everything is pointing to his glory, that should be my desire. If I recognize that even I was created with that purpose to glorify him, that should be what I desire. But the opposite of that is not that God is glorified, but that I would be glorified. You see, any attack that's made on salvation, any attack that says, well, salvation is about you being a good person, about your good outweighing your bad, about you earning salvation, that's an attack on God's glory. Because the, that, that attack says you can do something to be good enough to earn your salvation, therefore you should be praised if you are saved. Hmm. The idea is, is that you and I have nothing to brag about, and the Bible makes that very clear. So Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we have read three or four weeks of these five. Might be a, an important passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. This is not a result of works so that no one can boast. There's nothing to glory about in self. He's done all of it. 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, you, you didn't have any kind of standing. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He is all those things in us, so that, it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. All boasting has been stripped from us. We should not long for our own glory. The prayer of our heart should be Psalm 115 in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. 
This should be the prayer of our heart. Anytime that we choose to go our own direction rather than go God's direction, this is sin, we are choosing our glory over his own. Anytime that we point the finger toward what we have done rather than pointing the finger toward what he has done in us, we're longing for our own glory. Anytime that we look down our nose at someone who is not in Christ, we forget that once upon a time, there's no boasting to be had in us. So let's recognize that, first of all, the opposite of this idea of longing for God's glory. But the converse of that should be that if we have surrendered our life to him, that if he is living in us and we recognize that we have done nothing to earn this salvation, and yet the salvation that we are living in, that we are relish, that we're benefiting from, and that we're relishing and enjoying, that we're reveling in, is all to him, then what should we long for? Him to be glorified because of it. Because we've done nothing to boast, so our boasting should be in him. You see, if you and I eat at a place that's good, or we watch a movie that is good, or we hear a song that we like, what do we do? We tell people about it. We long for other people to know it and eat there and watch it and listen to it, right? Even if you have some kind of app or something on your phone, you know, and you, you know, I mean, I, I do, like, you know, on Spotify, if I hear a song I like, I hit a button. I think, oh, I think Lake would enjoy that song. I could hit a button, share, and I could send that thing to Lake. It's all set up so that I can share, because we do it so often. So the praise and glory of God should be what we are about. The idea that he doesn't want us just to merely look around and see his glory but he wants us to enjoy his glory and share it with others. Jonathan Edwards. God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in the rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. John Piper's statement. John Piper's famous statement from Desiring God is that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. That as I delight in him and I long for him and I I look to enjoy him, then God is glorified. I won't be able to help but to speak about it. Other people will see his spirit working in me and it will be evident. Even if I don't talk about it, it will be evident. This idea that his glory will be seen in those who have a desire and a longing for him. The idea that when we think about God's glory, it's not just that we, if our salvation is all to glorify him, 
right, then God is the end. God is not just the means to our salvation. God is the means and the end. He is that by which we are saved. He is the one who saves us, and he is the end. He is who we enjoy, this relationship with him once we are saved. When you read the Psalms, what you discover in the Psalms is there's a lot of language that is like this obsessive kind of language. Like, God, I have to have you. I'm desperate for you. I long for you. You see, a desire for God's glory is all about, it's rooted in having a desire for him, a strong longing for God. Listen to what the Psalms say. This is just a few of them. We could pull lots of examples. I think I have four. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before you? This is a, a, a thirst. You find it again, Psalm 63 and verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, I need you. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see. Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I enjoy him. I enjoy his words. I enjoy his commands because I long for his glory. I long for him. You know, that's how we talk about things. Like I said that a while ago, if you go to a good place to eat, you tell people about it, right? Neil's shaking his head. Neil told me about somewhere, you know, go eat. You know, it's a good place to go eat. I have people that tell me, I had people that, that told me about one particular restaurant. I had three people tell me about the same restaurant. This is what they said to me. Now, be careful. You'll hurt yourself. Independently, they told me the same phrase. They said, be careful. You'll hurt yourself. That's what they said. That's how they described how good it was. Uh, hang on, I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. <laughs> Can't let the secret get out, Brad. You know what I mean? The line will be really long come lunchtime, and I might want to go there, you know? You, you also think about, too, this idea that when I was little, you know, people used to use phrases like this. I heard you remember when I was little, people used to always say, um, that's so good it make you want to slap your grandma. You ever heard somebody say that? Like you brag on it and you talk about it because it's good and it's enjoyable and you, you get this delight from it. Let me ask you, do we enjoy God that same way? Like the same way that I have an app where I can share songs, have I shared Jesus with as many people as, have I, had, as I have shared songs with others that I like? And if you've been a part of those texts, you know I share a bunch of songs. So I got a lot of people to tell Jesus about, right? The longing for his, if we look around and we see it, and we recognize that it is all to be for him, then if we are his, our natural part of that relationship will be that we long to tell others about him that we long to have a glory, a see his glory be done as we follow his will for our life and to see him honored. We should look for his glory and long for his glory, but 
Thirdly, let me give you this. We are to live for his glory. Every part of our life is to be done in order that we might give him glory. Westminster Catechism, Protestant, I mean, uh, Presbyterian Catechism begins by asking, what is the chief end of man? What is man here for? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the answer in the catechism. What's the chief end of man? What is your purpose? What is our main purpose for living and being here? It's to glorify God and enjoy that glory. Charles Spurgeon, speaking to that, said, Man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy God. God's greatest and highest object is to make to himself a glorious and everlasting name. Now think about that for just a minute, what he's saying. What Spurgeon is saying is, is if your purpose is to glorify God, glorify his name, and God's desire is that his name be glorified, you and God are united in the same goal, that he be glorified. That means that every part of our life, no matter what we are doing, should be to that end, to see him glorified. Everything that we do should be done. That doesn't mean that you have to be here in this church 24-7. That doesn't mean that you always have to have your Bible open or have blisters on your knees from being in prayer. The Bible says that our lives should be lived, every facet of it should be lived for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. You name it. You name it. You, you find that thing that you do. The things that you do, everything that you do, do it to honor and glorify God. And you know, the truth is, if everything is done with that end, the truth is that there are some things that we do that get crossed off the list because they're not for the honor and glory of God. Most of the time, when they're not for the honor and glory of God, who are they for the honor and glory of? It does change our behavior. But the point of that thinking is, is that that means that God has created this world. He has created that stream that we enjoy or that beach that we enjoy, right? For him to be glorified. There's nothing spiritual about sitting next to the beach in your bathing suit and enjoying the day. But there can be. Because we do it all to the glory of God. Everything that we do is to be for his glory. And it is to be done not only that we would glorify him, but that others might as well. 
In Matthew 5, when Jesus was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, he said that if our lives glorify God, if we live for his glory, that others will see it, and it could be the catalyst to see them live for his glory. Matthew 5 and verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and that gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and may give glory to God who is in heaven. You see, we are to live for his glory if for no other reason than he's worthy of it. Cody read earlier from Revelation 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you. This is the praise around the throne of God in heaven. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. You and I are to look for his glory around us in every facet of our life, long for his glory in every part of it, and live every action, every thought, every word is taken captive and made for his honor and for his glory. This lifestyle of praise to his glory is what he calls us to. I want to tell you a story about another guy. I had a black and white photo last week. Let's do another one. Let's talk this week about Johann Sebastian Bach. Some of you may know this story, but it, because I have heard it several times, when I thought about this particular message, it seemed a fitting ending. Let me tell you this story. The year he was born was 1685. He was born to a very musical family. As a child, he learned to play the violin and the harpsichord and the organ, and he, he, he grew up around music, having been in a musical family. At the age of 10, his parents died in an accident, and he was given into the care of his brother, who was the organist at the Lutheran church. That's, they, were, they were Lutherans. And so um, his brother was the organist at the church, and he lived with, he lived with his brother, Johann did. And at a very young age, being a child, his brother, who was the organist, kept all the sheet music locked up because it was too valuable for children to play with, right? But he was obsessed with this stuff. And so at night, he would creep down the steps, and the cabinet where his brother kept that music had a had lattice on the front. And so he would stick his arm in through the holes of the lattice work, and he would roll up a piece of music, and he would slip it out, and he would copy it all down. And then he would roll it up very carefully and stick it back in and lay it flat. And then he would wait until the time when he had, you know, he was alone and he had it to himself and he would work on this new music that he had. Right? When he was 17, he got a job as the organist of, of a church, a, a local church, and he began to play. He enjoyed it. People noticed his musical abilities. People talked about it. But not everyone was happy. Uh, Johan, some people don't like this music that you're playing. Oh, really, what's, what's wrong with it? Well, it's kind of showy, don't you think? Some people even think it's sinful. This music should be simple so that a person doesn't focus on the music or the performer, but focuses on God. His defense was, over and over again, 
I only want God glorified in my music. Some people choose to do that with a simple style. The style that I have chosen is not simple, but it's still just an humble offering made to God, and that's, that's what honors him. He and the church did not see eye to eye on it, and he was dismissed. He ended up and found a duke that hired him. The Duke of Weimar hired him to write music and compose music and to perform music. And he encouraged him to perform and write sacred kinds of songs, songs that would honor God and would be religious in their thought or in their theme. It became Johann Sebastian Bach's practice that when he because of everything that had happened before at that church, when he started to write, this idea of God being glorified rather than him being glorified was on his mind. And so he began a practice. Before he wrote the first note on the page, he would write two letters at the top of the page. Sometimes it was JJ, sometimes it was JH. Those let- it was a prayer. Those letters... The JJ was Latin, Jesu Juva, and the, the, I don't know the German, but JH was the German of that, and it was a prayer. Jesus, help. Jesus, help me. Help me as I write that people may respond and you be glorified. He even prayed. Jesus, help me show your glory through the music I write. May it bring joy to you even as it brings joy to your people. He would write that prayer at the top of the page. He would write. When he finished, he would always end, after everything was completed, he would write three letters at the bottom of the page, S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. May this music be for the glory of God alone. He would even tell Prince Leopold of Germany, I play the notes as they are written, but it is God who makes the music. He died in 1750, and when he died, his music was pretty much considered old-fashioned, and he was forgotten. Eighty, hundred years later, Felix Mendelssohn, the composer, found some of Bach's things and kind of revived that, and we now know the name Johann Sebastian Bach because of that kind of revival of his music. This is not a story about Johann Sebastian Bach. It's a story about the glory of God and how it should be in every facet of our life. Let me ask you a question. When you get up in the morning, is that thought at the beginning of each day, do you ever, JJ or JH, Lord help me. Lord, help me today that everything that I do would give you honor, would give you glory. Could you confidently at night after it's all over with, SDG, soli deo gloria, everything to your honor and your glory. You see, it's one thing to do that during a day. We forget to do that, on, you know, we forget to do that very often, Right? I mean, we get up and we're, oh, we're late and we're rushing around and we're hurrying. When Jesus help me, well, we, we only start that when we get into trouble about 9.30 or 10 o'clock, right? And then we start saying, Jesus help me, you know? When the wheels are falling off, that's when we start saying, Jesus help me. Not at the beginning of it all, right? 
And because the wheels have fallen off and we've said what we've said and done what we've done, when we get home at night, many times we've got more regrets than we've got instead of saying, well, I did it all for your honor and your glory today. Jesus, I cussed them out in your name. <laughs> We're not able to say that, are we? And it's very easy to forget in a day. But you want me to tell you what should be true of every person in this room? If you're going to have a relationship with him, if you're going to be in heaven, if your life is going to give glory, at some point along the way, you have to recognize that you cannot do this on your own. And the prayer must be uttered from your lips. Jesus, help me. I am, I am in no position to help myself, and I am lost and I am undone without you. In a dry and weary land, I am thirsty. And what I need you to save me. In desperation, I cry out to you, Jesus, help me. So that we can then be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit work and live through us. So that we see his glory around us. So that we long for it in our life. And we live for it every day. So that like Paul says, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, it's been nothing that I've done, solely Deo Gloria. It's only those who have trusted in him and then seen his glory in their life that can be confident and be assured of that salvation. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to find more resources to help you grow in your walk with Christ, check out our website at rootedandresolved.org.